Hi, I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the next episode of The Backstory on the Shroud of Turin. If you haven't already done so, please visit Guy Powell and sign up for more episodes. I am the author of the new book, The Only Witness, a historical fiction tracing a possible history of the Shroud over the last two millennia. Today, we'll be speaking with Dr. Brian Donley Worrell, and he is a PhD chemist. So let me tell you a little bit about Brian. He is a former Fortune 500 VP with a strong background in chemistry, internet technology, business development, and blockchain technology. With a Bachelor of Science degree in chemistry, much of his postgraduate work focused in the disparate areas of various technologies and biblical sciences, culminating with his PhD in biblical studies. Um, in uh, 2022, Dr. Worrell and Dr. Stevenson uh, Dr. Stevenson is an original member of the STIRP uh, team. Uh, they co-authored a book entitled The Shroud of Turin, The Perfect Summary. The book has been translated into several languages and is available in English, Hebrew, Italian, and Spanish. The book and a number of amazing materials are available for free at their website. Please be sure to visit their site at www.theshroudofturin.org, www.theshroudofturin.org, and get your free copy of The Shroud of Turin, The Perfect Summary. So with that, uh, welcome, Brian. It's so good to have you. Thank you, Guy. Good to see you, and thank you for having me. Absolutely. I thought uh, one thing I, I, I wanted to mention as well, I did want to uh, kind of read the dedication to the book, and, um, and I thought that might be interesting. And uh, here it is. I never thought I would have the opportunity and the honor of working with Dr. Stevenson in helping to create this book. Nearly everything I know about the Shroud of Turin I learned from Ken, drawing upon his nearly 50 years of exper expertise and research it was less of an effort and more of a pleasure to work with him in writing this summary of the extensive research, designing and implementing collateral websites and developing associated resources. So uh, Brian, tell us a little bit about your backstory. So how did you get involved in the Sherrod of Turin and then how did you get involved with working with Dr. Stevenson? Well, again, thank you very much, Guy, for, for having me aboard today. I can't tell you what a pleasure and an honor it is to uh, to be aboard with you today. And um, before I, I answer that question, I do want to just echo something you stated earlier. Um, I want to congratulate you personally on your book, The Only Witness, A History of the Shroud of Turin. I understand it's a bestseller on Amazon, so congrat <laughs> congratulations for that. You should be duly applauded for that. And, thank uh, you. I was, I also got, had the chance to see your entire interview with Nancy Grace, and I, I've loved Nancy Grace and been a fan of her for many years. So uh, kudos to you and that uh, guy. Congratulations. Yeah, Nancy uh, and I go back quite a few years, and I was really surprised. I uh, She uh, reached out to me a couple of days before the launch and says, Guy, I'd like to interview you about your book. And I was uh, totally surprised, but also incredibly blessed. She is just a, a great friend and a great Christian, and it was so much fun to actually be on her show. Yes, great, great. So to uh, to answer your first question, uh, a little about my backstory and how I became involved with the Shroud of Turin uh, in general. I would say I first heard of the Shroud of Turin, I'm sure when I was a child or a young teenager, and 
at that time, it sounded like one of those things that you're not quite sure if it's real, but you want to know more about it. However, at that time, Guy, as you know, we really did not have the level of scientific uh, expertise and experience which had taken its, taken the shroud upon, uh, upon its own investigation. We didn't have the chance to really get more scientific data, et cetera, because at that time, none of it existed. So fast forward a few years, um, as I went through graduate school and was studying for my doctorate in biblical studies, uh, I was again confronted or came across more information on the Shroud of Turin. And by happenstance, I happened to be placed in touch with Dr. Kenneth E. Stevenson. Uh, during my studies for my doctorate, one of the administrators at the school said, you know, Brian, we, we know that you're in the Fortune 500, you do a lot of writing, and we have this book that one of our students wrote, and we'd really like you to take a look at it and give us some input, let us know what you think. The book is called, uh, in fact, I actually have the book right here. The book is called Nazar, White Linen and the Blood of Sprinkling by Dr. Kenneth E. Stevenson. So I took a look at the book, read, read through everything, and I was just completely blown away by it. Um, in doing so, that was when I was placed in touch uh, with Dr. Stevenson, my, my very good friend, Kenneth Stevenson, and uh, we have been very close friends, allies, and, and co-workers ever since then. So that's how I actually came to meet uh, Dr. Stevenson. Yeah, fantastic. And um, yeah, and I uh, read Nazar, and um, and I've also read the the other book, The Perfect Summary, and um, uh, it, they are really a, a good contribution to uh, to what's going on in the shroud world today. And then with Nazar, certainly also uh, combining faith with the shroud and and other important messages about what that what the shroud and what Christ uh, absolutely means for all of us. Absolutely. So, yeah, so tell us now, uh, so what is The Perfect Summary? What's that book all about? The Perfect Summary, well, to take sort of half a step back, when I reviewed the Nazar book and uh, became friends with Dr. Stevenson, I believe that was his fourth book on the Shroud of Turin at the time. I stress that because he is one of the, literally one of the world's leading foremost experts on the Shroud of Turin. In 1978, a group of scientists uh, banded together and were actually granted permission to have hands-on access to and hands-on opportunity to evaluate and scientifically analyze the Shroud of Turin for a total of about five days nonstop working around the clock. And Ken was one of those individuals. The team was called the Shroud of Turin Research Project, or STIRP for short, in 1978. This team consisted of a number of individuals from the, from NASA, from Jet Propulsion Laboratory, from the United States Air Force, and a number of top-notch organizations, very highly respected uh, individuals. I mention that because many people, for some reason, tend to assume that this was some group of Christians who got together and somehow got permission, were granted permission to view and analyze the Shroud of Turin. And that simply is not the case. The, uh, the fact of the matter is, the vast majority of the people on that Shroud of Turin research project in 1978 were actually not Christian, the, the vast majority of them. Um, and th again, that's neither good nor bad. I'm just sharing that so that mm -hmm. people know this was not some kind of one-sided, biased informational objective. So uh, so 
the um, so that's uh, what we've done with the Shroud of Turin. And um, yeah, and you're right. So uh, uh, very much so about uh, the Shroud of Turin research project, STERP, and the team of scientists that went over there. They were they were truly scientists. And now certainly some of them were Christian. Some of them were Jewish. Barry Schwartz was Absolutely. a Jewish. Some Barry of them were Schwartz, atheists. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and it's pretty, uh, pretty surprising uh, that uh, that they were able to put together such a uh, an esteemed group of, of of scientists, but also of different faith backgrounds, which I think helped overall to really understand uh, the the meaning of, of the shroud and, and everything that that they were able to do with the shroud as they were studying it. And to yes. your point as well, in 1978, when that took place, I do remember that happening very vaguely. Uh, maybe it was a Time magazine or a Life magazine uh, article that I read. And, you know, and you kind of, I, I don't know, I kind of put that away and said, wow, that's kind of interesting. Didn't know that, he, that it even existed. And, uh, and yet here they were, these scientists going over and, and studying that. And then to your point, uh, Dr. Ken Stevenson, he was one of the original members of, the, uh, of, the, of that STERP team. Yes, indeed, indeed. You had also asked about the book which Ken and I co-authored recently, and uh, the book is entitled, as you mentioned, The Shroud of Turin, The Perfect Summary. And the background for this book is such that uh, Ken and I really wanted to put together a book that was, I guess the average person would consider it easy, more easy reading type of material. In other words, a person would not feel intimidated if they don't have a strong background in science or in scripture or in history. The book is written more from the standpoint of the everyday man just kind of telling a story to another person and sharing the information. Yeah, and I thought that was uh, very good when I read it, and I will admit it was about a month or so, maybe more ago, uh, when we first started talking, and I thought that was, it made a lot of sense, and it really did uh, target not just the, you know, the devout Christian or the devout Catholic, it really did seem like it was toward the more general audience, things were put into, uh, into terms that uh, that made sense that anybody could read and then and uh, and and associate it with it and then potentially which I think is maybe the most important thing is to ask more questions so yes. they would want to ask more questions well what is this shroud how can that how can that be what is that where did that image come from and Absolutely. I thought it was a masterful job and plus you also have a very unique way in, in that you're selling it so tell us about that. Yes, the um, the book is actually not for sale. We give it away completely for free. Anyone who wants to get a copy of the book, you only have to go to our website, which is www.theshroudofturin.org slash free book, F-R-E-E-B-O-O-K. You just go to that uh, webpage and the book is available completely for free. You don't pay for any shipping or handling and the book is available currently in English, in Italian, Spanish, or the Hebrew languages. We're in the process now, Guy, of, of converting the book and translating it into additional languages as well. So you will be hearing more about that in the future. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, definitely let me know about that. And uh, if you do one in German, I spent uh, quite a few years in German and uh, in Germany and uh, would be able to 
uh, help you uh, maybe with the uh, at least some of the proofreading or something like that. So, ah, uh, sprechen Sie Deutsch? <laughs> uh, ich, ich spreche, ich spreche, ja, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Actually, it's funny. I was just on another uh, call this morning with uh, a gentleman from Germany and I got to warm up my German. It was a little bit difficult, but nevertheless, uh, I was able to talk to him a little bit about the shroud in German. That was a lot of that was a lot of fun. Oh, that's so, great. yeah. So uh, let's stay with the uh, the perfect summary. Now, you mentioned it's kind of for the the everyday person. It's not specific towards one type of person or another one. What do you want them to come away with after they've read that? I think the biggest thing I want people to come away with when they read The Shroud of Turin, The Perfect Summary, is I want them to feel that they have been provided specific factual data, which is what we we encompass within the book. You know, ev everything in the book is has been scientifically proven. And the book also focuses upon tying together, or I should really say showing how tightly history, science, and the scripture are all actually very much aligned with respect to the Shroud of Turin. You know, we have uh, the research from the Shroud of Turin Research Project. Uh, much of that research is heavily quoted within the book. But again, these are internationally renowned top level scientists doing every kind of research and analysis that you can think of on this cloth. I mean, uh, x-rays, spectrometry, everything you can think of was done to this cloth and they were able to take that data and say, hey, we've actually learned a lot about this cloth. The cloth itself is a piece of linen. It's about 14 and a half feet long, about three and a half feet wide. And it has been around since, oh, about 2000 years or so. You know, we even include a lot of scientific data, again, from a scientific team. So this is not this is what I want to believe. This is what you want to believe. This is hearsay. No, we included fact from the scientific team, which actually does a very effective job of shooting down a lot of misinformation and also disinformation, which people intentionally provide, especially regarding the, the aging of the Shroud of Turin itself. Yeah, which uh, brings up uh, maybe the next question. So 1978 was when STIRP took place. It took a couple of years for them to uh, release their reports. It became pretty widespread that the knowledge about the Shroud more or less moved out of just Italy, but now more uh, now more worldwide. Then uh, then then 1988 happened, and uh, and so how do you handle 1988 with the uh, and the, what I bring up there is the dating, the sure. radiocarbon dating or the carbon 14 dating, whatever terminology you want to use. Tell us how, uh, how you discuss that in the book. We we discuss it from a very factual standpoint. Okay, we keep a lot of opinion out of it, but we give the actual facts which have been recorded scientifically. Um, guys, you know, my, my undergrad degree is in chemistry. And as a scientist, I have to go on a little bit of a rant here, I guess, but as a scientist, <laughs> one of the things to which the standard to which we are held is everything must be honest and reproducible. In other words, you don't take data and try to, you don't try to perform an experiment that cannot be reproduced or perform an experiment where you're taking only part of the data or you're utilizing a, a product or a substance which you know is not honestly representative of the overall substance. And that is the main point for the carbon-14 dating. 
guys, I'm sure you already know, when the carbon-14 dating was done, uh, a little snippet of the a little snippet of the shot of Turin was taken, a little cloth snippet, and performed radiocarbon dating on it. And the carbon dating came back and said, well, it looks like this uh this piece of linen is at the oldest from the Middle Ages, sometime from around 1230, 1230 to 1390, I think it was. Yeah, 1260 to 1390. 1260 to 1390, right. Exclamation point. Can't forget the exclamation point. Exactly. And so when one sees that information, one assumes, oh, look, those first group of international scientists, they all bungled it, not likely, but they all bungled it and somehow... This, you know, this this uh, piece of linen is only dated back to the 1290-1300 time frame. Well, let's take a look at what was actually done. The Shroud of Turin, as I mentioned, is a piece of linen cloth, okay, 14 and a half by about three and a half feet wide. And when that sample was taken, they, in my humble opinion, but I'm sure I'm correct on this as in the opinion of many others, they did not take a representative sample of the, of the overall fabric. The fabric that was taken or the sample was taken from the very bottom edge and a very small part of the cloth or the linen was cut off. Now, here's the problem with that. Here, here's kind of how I explain it so that people can kind of better visualize it. You know, a cloth, pretty much any cloth that you have is going to be sort of woven. If you look at my fingers, there's, you know, you're going to have, uh, some threads going north-south, if you will, and other threads going east-west. So they're all woven together, okay? Now, if you have, let's say, a large piece of fabric or a blanket or anything, think about what happens to the edges of a blanket. What happens? Over time, it starts to get frayed, doesn't it? You start to have a lot of threads that start missing or being torn or ripped. And if you don't do something to address that, what's going to happen? Well, that entire piece of fabric is going to start to unravel or start to come apart starting at the ends of it. That's just, This is just common sense. That's not grand science. That's just common sense. So what was done with the Shroud of Turin is uh, cotton fibers were used and rewoven in with the actual linen fibers. They did a masterful job of it as well. It was woven in in such a fashion that it would not be extremely easy to see. But again, that is the area of the sample that was taken. So here's what actually happened with the radiocarbon dating, scientifically speaking. A very poor and non-representative sample was taken from the bottom edge of the cloth. That sample, according to the scientists who did this experiment, was a sample of the Shroud of Turin linen. Not exactly true. In fact, completely untrue. It contains some of the linen fibers, but guy, what happens when you start to weave other fibers in with those fibers, like in that crisscross fashion that I mentioned, what happens when you weave other fibers in so that, that fibers don't, those fibers don't continue to unravel? What happens is you get a mixture of the original linen fibers mixed in with the cotton fibers that were used when the um, that reweaving was done. In fact, the entire process is called invisible reweaving. So when you take when you take a sample from that area, you are getting a sample that is completely flawed and not representative of the overall linen garment. So what actually happened with that? What happens is they take a flawed sample, they run carbon dating on it, and they say, oh look, 
it shows this sample that the, the Shroud of Turin is really dated to about 1260 to 1390. It's right in that area. And see, this cannot possibly be the Shroud uh, 2000 years old from Jesus Christ. Well, what actually happened was when you take a sample which consists of linen threads intermingled and mixed with cotton fibers, guess what you're going to get? You're going to get a date somewhere between the age of the older linen fibers and the age of the newer cotton fibers. So that's why you get that mixture in there. I mean, I can tell you a number of other studies which have been done and which show that, for example, there have been several threads taken from that sample and they've shown where even one thread on that sample, one end of that thread, the dating will be around 14 or 1500 AD, but the other end of that same thread, the dating is about 2000 years old. Mm -hmm. And as we know, that's not possible unless you have two different uh, substances woven together in, in that thread. So that's, um, that's the story with the carbon 14 dating. Yeah, and and actually, uh, there's there's a handful of other things uh, that that went wrong. You know, to your point about as a scientist, you have to uh, provide reproducible, valid uh, results, and they have to withstand scrutiny by other scientists. Absolutely. And uh, one of the things that was kind of interesting, and it was uh, in 2002 with uh, Tristan Casabianca, is he actually then got. Uh, the 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 results, the individual results that were summarized in the 1260 to 1390 exclamation point. Uh, and he actually got the individual results from each of the three labs and determined that they didn't do their statistics right. Exactly. And I, I work with statistics just about every day right now in my day job, so to speak. And uh, you know, you 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 can you can flub the data, but if you can at least make sure that your statistics are right, well, you can't flub the data. You, you have the data, you have the statistics, and both of them have to be correct. You can't Absolutely. just flub you know, one or the other and, and expect to get a result that's re reproducible and withstands scrutiny. And, um, you know, and that's kind of what, uh, what happened here. And it took, you know, another 10 or 15 years before that was finally brought to light that there was, uh, uh, I don't know if you'd call it unscrupulous, probably unscrupulous, uh, activities that took place in, in the, in the three labs that provided the dating that you, that you went through. Very much so when, when quote unquote scientists twist their statistics that way, we call it statistics instead of <laughs> statistics. So you can use that one. They they performed a lot of statistics on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to remember that. That's pretty good. Yeah. So uh, you know, and, and it's and it's funny that uh, well, not funny, but the impact that that had. And I don't think you mentioned this in the book, but the impact that that had on the study of the shroud really put a huge damper on it. All of a sudden, it was 1988. You know, people are interested in obviously the radiocarbon dating that at the time was believed to be the the most important thing. And it really because of that, because of the reputation or the expected results that were going to come out of that, it just put an enormous damper on on study of the shroud when every other study that was done on the shroud basically said it's somewhere from 2000 years ago, maybe yes. plus or minus with some error. And so that everything else 
really reflected uh, exactly where you would expect it to be if it was the burial shroud of Jesus Christ. And yet then everybody saw this radiocarbon dating and it really just put a, you know, put a fly in the ointment in a big way for the, uh, the study of the shroud. Yeah, in, in my opinion, and I hope no one sues me for this, but I don't care. I said the words in my opinion, but I'm right on this one. Uh, the, the, that, that had to have been done intentionally. I mean, as mm. a scientist and speaking as a scientist, trust me, we know better. We, we know yeah. better than to do things like that. We know better than to take a clearly non-representative sample. We, we, we know not to do these things. And when it is shown to us that, hey, this is incorrect. As a true scientist, what we're supposed to do is what? Republish and say, oops, well, there was a mistake made. It turns out this actually is not from 1260 to 1390. It turns out it's actually from you know, about 2000 years ago. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, that's, and it's also a shame. It's not only the scientists, but it's also the, the publication. I think it was Science Magazine, uh, or uh, I, I don't remember which one it was now, but Science Magazine or that uh, actually published the results. And they are unwilling to retract that, uh, those, that statement, even though now it's been proven that there was some uh, skullduggery or something going on that, that was not quite right. So, uh, and it is really a shame. The good news is, though, that's now past us. It's behind us. And, uh, you know, everything that I see, and including your book and my book, uh, both your uh, The Shroud of Turin, The Perfect Summary, awesome book, and then also the Nazar book, which we'll talk about in a second. All of those books now are really uh, one of many to really bring back uh, and get people very motivated to want to study and understand more about the enormous mysteries that are that are wrapped up in that shroud. Absolutely. And, you know, you and I just spoke for a few minutes about the, the carbon dating, but there are so many other facets of the testing that has been done on the Shroud of Turin, which it, which flat out proves this document, this uh, garment is about 2000 years old. I should say this fabric is about 2000 years old. Uh, they were tape samples, sticky tape samples taken from some of the actual main centralized areas of the shroud. And when those samples were analyzed, they they clearly found traces of uh, of pollen and different remnants of plant life, of plants which only bloomed in Jerusalem around that time of the year. So, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's very interesting indeed. There's, there's so many facts that, uh, that need yeah. to come out to the public. And I think that's, that's one of the, uh, the most important ones is the, uh, the pollen uh, study and making sure uh, or, and seeing that if this is a medieval fake, then how could it have pollen from Jerusalem and potentially even pollen from uh, uh, from, Turkey? from Turkey? And and um, and then how could a forger actually be that good? How would they have been that good in the 1300s, 1400s when this uh, when this uh, fake was supposed to have come from the radiocarbon dating? Exactly. There's uh, there's also a, a number of theories which people have have brought forth to say, oh, this thing is a fake. Every one of those theories has been scientifically disproven. So I want people to understand more than anything that, you know, when you hear myself or Guy Powell talking about this, we're talking about hard scientific data. So we're talking about fact as opposed to here's what I believe or here's what this other person believes, et cetera. And to your point, reproducible and withstand scrutiny of other scientists. 
Absolutely. And those two pieces, uh, you know, all of those studies, whether it was the, you know, the pollen study or any of the other ones, uh, and there's a bunch of them that we could talk about, uh, you know, each one of those can withstand scientific scrutiny by other scientists and then is repeatable. And, uh, and that's then why those are so valuable towards really uh, getting closer to be able to say that this is what we believe is the, the, the burial uh, cloth of uh, Jesus Christ. Yes. Uh, so uh, let's uh, shift gears a little bit. I know you want to talk about the book Nazar. And uh, uh, so tell us a little bit about that. What does the word Nazar mean? Well, um, that is one of the best questions that anyone can actually ask about the book. What does the word Nazar mean? In order to truly explain it, I want to take just half a step back and kind of come back to it. But uh, I want to give people just a little bit of background about the Hebrew language. Um, I've, I have studied Hebrew and taken classes in Hebrew. Uh, my Hebrew is not excellent at this time, but I, I have studied the language and it really, Hebrew in itself is really a very fascinating language. I mean, let's think about it for a minute. As we all know, human beings have communicated from, let's say, from the beginning at some point. Uh, but when we first started communicating with each other, we didn't have books. We certainly didn't have, you know, iPads or anything. We didn't have books. We didn't have writing. We didn't have tablets. So before we even had, were carving any kind of pictures or letters or alphabets, what did we do? We typically spoke to each other and we used a lot of hand gestures. So, you know, the uh, language really began with people just sort of making sounds with each other. And at some point, those sounds became pictures and we start to draw pictures of things. And at some point it was decided, you know, it kind of makes sense if we have an alphabet. So from there, alpha, the uh, alphabet was, uh, was devised. And of course we use the letters in the alphabet to form words, etc. No surprise there. Hebrew is very interesting because let's compare it to the English language for just a moment, if we could. The uh, English language has the alphabet has uh, 26 letters in the English alphabet. There are 22 in the Hebrew alphabet. But in the English alphabet, every let we have what are called letters, A, B, C, etc. Well, in the Hebrew alphabet, there are letters, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, etc. In the English alphabet, every letter has a name of the letter and it has a symbol. A capital A, we kind of draw like this. So there's a letter, there's a symbol. Same thing in the Hebrew alphabet. But here's where the Hebrew alphabet really gets a little more interesting. In addition to those standard letters and letter names and symbols for each letter, every letter in the Hebrew alphabet also has a pictograph associated with it, an actual picture associated with every letter. In addition, every letter in the Hebrew alphabet also has a, a definition or a a, um, a representative name for that alphabet, for that particular letter. So the pictographs for the Hebrew alphabet are very, very interesting because if you actually read Hebrew, the Hebrew language, when you read a Hebrew word, the word is there, you're reading the alphabets, the Hebrew alphabet, and of course you can understand what the Hebrew word means. Yet if you take the time to take that word apart, literally letter by letter, Every individual letter has its own definition, so to speak, and its own pictograph associated with it. So a, a very good example is uh, if we look at the first three words 
in the Bible. In the English Bible, Genesis 1-1 starts off with the words, in the beginning. Uh, let's see, uh, see if I can maybe show this on the screen a little bit. I don't know if this will come up well or not. But um, yeah, this may not come up on your screen, but in the, um, the first words in the uh, English Bible are the words, in the beginning. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, the words in the beginning is the Hebrew word Bereshit. Bereshit is spelled with the letters Bet, Resh, Alf, Shin, Yod, and Tav. So just as you spell out a word, Bereshit, you can spell in the Hebrew alphabet. But if you take a look at each one of those letters in the word Bereshit, and you look at not only the pictograph for each of those letters, but if you look at the definition or the meaning in every one of those pictographs, the word Bereshit, if you look at the definition, actually means the Son of God, his hand consumed on a cross. It literally says that in the very beginning of the Bible. So you asked earlier, what does the word Nazah mean? Well, the word Nazah, we can most readily see, let's see, we can most readily see it here in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 15. The word Nazah the definition of the word really refers to uh, a sprinkling. But if you break down the word nazah, the letters in the Hebrew alphabet actually mean for the word nazah, behold, the heir to the throne pierced. Does that sound like anyone you know? <laughs> so, you know, the Bible itself, I, I love the way the Bible itself always confirms and reconfirms what it's giving to the reader and what it says to you. And that can be not only from the Old Testament, but into the, the New Testament as well. You know, we've always said that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And if you really look at the two together, there are so many striking examples whereby that which will occur in the New Testament is very clearly foretold and outlined in the Old Testament. I mean, back in the Old Testament, David actually, in great detail, explains and expresses what the process of crucifixion is like and what it does to a human body. And David did this 700 years before the process of crucifixion was ever even invented, so to speak. So it, it's amazing the way the Bible always confirms itself. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you're uh, in the beginning and the, the description of that, and then uh, for the word Nazah, and then taking that out of Isaiah, uh, you know, Isaiah for me uh, is if I had to pick, uh, you know, five books of the Bible, uh, you know, it would be the four Gospels and Isaiah. And yes. Isaiah is so powerful to me. It, um, you know, so much has been foretold. Obviously, there's also some foretelling in other books of the Bible in Ezekiel, and you actually mention and go through a lot of those in the book Nazah. And uh, but really, Isaiah, I think, is uh, is to your point, is the 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 New Testament concealed and then the the Old Testament revealed, and uh, Isaiah as the precursor, and then you know the Gospels themselves uh, certainly as the as the the core of the of Jesus's message. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so uh, I didn't uh, until I read uh, the book. I didn't realize the pictographics uh, of the of the language. 
when I think about you know pictographs and then even hieroglyphics uh, on, on the Egyptian side, you know I never really would have uh, put those together. Uh, how did how did how did all of that come together? And how did you how did you see that? And how did you and and I guess Ken as well, uh, you know, work towards that and 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 pick out the different pieces of it? Because that studying the Old Testament and putting all of the Old Testament together, there's a lot there. And, uh, and, uh, and that must have been a, you know, really a labor of love, I, I, can, I can imagine. Very much so. I, I can't speak for Ken. I can say that I know that Ken has done this for so many decades, and his, his breadth as well as depth of his biblical knowledge is just extreme. And he has truly studied and researched this for, for so many decades. Uh, speaking for myself, when I, years ago, when I first learned of things like the, the pictographs in the Hebrew alphabet, I just found it so intriguing. It drew me more and more to study and to better understand this thing we call the Bible and what's really written in it and just how powerful, not only the words, but what it's actually telling you, how powerful it is. Yeah, yeah. And I've uh, I've not get in, gotten into Hebrew. I Certainly with, with Greek in the New Testament, I, uh, it, uh, and not not that I really learned anything. I mean, I, you know, you go back to like a, you know, a, a lexicon to try and look up the words and, and it just taking the Greek in the new Testament uh, and adding that uh, extra layer of definition to what you read in the new Testament has just been phenomenal. And then to your point here about Nazah, the word Nazah, and then the word or words uh, Bereshit, that is uh, that's just uh, absolutely fascinating. Yes. Yes, it is. It is indeed. So now the uh, the actual title of the book is uh, is not just Nazar. It is uh, the sprinkling of the blood, yes. I think. Yes, yeah. Nazar, white linen and the blood of the sprinkling is the full title of the book. And uh, the book itself is available through Amazon. And so uh, I hardly encourage everyone to to get a copy of the book Nazar. In fact, I do happen to have a copy here. Here is essentially what the book will look like. Mm -hmm. As you can see by Dr. Kenneth Stevenson. So I very much encourage people to grab a copy of this book. It is available through Amazon, and it's just such a fascinating read and such a fascinating study. Uh, Ken does an excellent job of relating the factual input from the Bible and tying it together with what actually occurred from the Old Testament into the New and giving you such an in-depth and positive exploration of the Hebrew language, what some of the words mean, the pictographs, et cetera. So I find that just very interesting. And everyone who to whom I've spoken has just really loved the book, Nazar. Yeah, no, and I found it to be uh, exactly like you're saying. I, I enjoyed, uh, and I don't know, maybe I'm just weird like that, but I enjoyed seeing all of the different definitions as uh, you know, that could be possibly read into different, into different yes. phrases and different words. And I, I think that uh, you know, as you study, you know, when you first read the Bible, whether it's the New or the Old Testament, you kind of get the, you know, the overall picture. And then you kind of, you know, you do a second read and a third read and a fourth read. And then this is kind of like the 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 advanced read. Uh, and not not that it's hard to read, nothing like that, but it's kind of the advanced read to get that next level of meaning out of the uh, out of out of the reading of the Old Testament and the, and the Hebrew that's underneath that. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, another word which we've all heard is the word Yahweh. And in Hebrew, if you look at the letters that comprise that word and look at their pictographs and the definitions, the, the letters for Yahweh actually mean hand behold, nail behold. So even mm -hmm. the word Yahweh, God is saying, 
yes, my son's going to have a nail through his hand and be crucified. So mm. it all ties together. Yep. Yep. It really does. So, uh, uh, so again, let me uh, maybe reiterate, what do you see as the primary message that you want people to come away with uh, when they get done reading Nazar? With Nazar, I really hope people come away with a better understanding and a much greater level of comfort with the greater depths of the Bible and what it actually shares with you. Because I'm, I'm glad, very much glad that you mentioned earlier, Guy, that the book is very great in its level of detail, but it is not at all intimidating. I, I don't want people to feel like they really need to understand Agreed. the Hebrew yep. language or yep. I really need a background in in theology or a strong background in science or anything. That simply is not the case. The book is very informative, but it's also extremely readable and it's also a very enjoyable read. It's it's the kind of thing you will read and you'll say, wow, that was good. And you go back and wind up reading parts of it over and over again to really get it. Yeah, yeah. And just the way you explained, uh, you know, the meaning of uh, in the beginning, bear a sheet and what it actually means uh, through the pictographs, uh, that uh, that explanation and that uh, really is something that, first of all, as soon as you see it, you go, wow, that is just incredible. Never knew that, never would have thought about that. And yet how that, like you said, how that then connects the Old Testament to the New Testament and, uh, and that, it, like I said, it, I, I found it very easy to read, and I definitely learned quite a bit from it. So uh, kudos to you guys to, uh, to have put that together. Well, thank you. Yes, you know, even in our, our newer book, uh, The Shroud of Turin, The Perfect Summary, I go, we go quite a bit into in-depth and in detail on the pictographs and the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and we really do a very thorough job of explaining it. And again, guys, you mentioned uh, anyone with even zero background, I mean, absolute zero background in biblical studies, or even if you've never read the Bible, you can literally look at it and say, hey, this just makes perfect sense. I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, before we close, any other uh, messages you, you'd like to get across? Anything interesting you're working on or any new insights over and above what you have in, in the perfect summary and also in the in the Nazar book? Uh, well, a couple of things. Uh, as I mentioned, for our book, uh, the Shroud of Turin, The Perfect Summary, it currently is available in English, in Hebrew, in Spanish, and in Italian. And as I stated, you can get any of those versions for free. You simply go to our website at www.theshroudofturin.org slash freebook, F-R-E-E-B-O-O-K. We also have our uh, our Facebook groups page available. I would very much encourage all of our viewers to take a look at our Facebook page. Um, the Facebook page is at facebook.com slash perfect summary, or the groups page is facebook.com slash groups, G-R-O-U-P-S slash perfect summary. And that page was, is being updated constantly, giving you a lot of really good, strong information, not only on our book, but on a lot of other excellent books available out there. Guy, you noticed that we had highlighted your, we were very happy and proud yes. to highlight your book one there as well. So great information you that so you much. provide to everyone. Thank you. And uh, we also have our own YouTube channel. The YouTube channel is quite interesting because we also include videos of presentations given by Dr. Kenneth Stevenson at various locations throughout the year. And uh, even some of his television presentations from the old TBN and Trinity networks, I believe. So if you want to check out some of those videos, our channel at YouTube is 
www.youtube.com slash the at sign perfect summary. So it's hmm. youtube.com slash at sign perfect summary. And uh, so th- those are the, the main items I'd, I'd like to point out to everyone and, and hope everyone takes advantage of the information that's available out there. Yeah, and I definitely encourage everyone to read, especially the Nazar book, uh, uh, because it, it definitely uh, sheds totally new light on uh, on how the the Old Testament and the New Testament really really come together, and uh, and then like uh, Brian said, these pictographs and just bringing that out as a, as a new dimension in in studying the the Old Testament is really just absolutely fascinating, and uh, and I really uh, enjoyed that. So thank you and thank you to Ken as well, and um, so uh, otherwise Brian, thank you so much. It was really great to have you on, um, and uh, really appreciate uh, that you were able to persi- participate. And uh, just as a reminder, uh, go to theshroudoftourin.org. Turin is T-U-R-I-N.org. It sounded like your Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash at sign the perfect summary. Uh, uh, perfect correct. summary. Not perfect summary without the. Mm-hmm. And uh, then you have a YouTube, which was uh, youtube.com. And correct me on that one as well. Well, okay. The, uh, the Facebook page is www.facebook.com slash perfect summary. Uh, no at sign there for Facebook, just www.facebook.com slash perfect summary or the Facebook groups page is facebook.com slash the word groups, G R O U P S slash perfect summary. So that's our Facebook groups page. And the YouTube page again is www.youtube.com slash at sign perfect summary. Uh, I would like to share one other piece of interesting sure. information. Our our book, uh, The Shroud of Turin, The Perfect Summary was launched and made publicly available January 1st of 2023. So in six months, as of today, we have about 1000 people worldwide reading the book. The book is being read in 57 countries worldwide mm. already. We're very happy about that. So 57 countries world, worldwide, and we're currently being read in every state in the United States of America and the G- District of Columbia, with the exception of, <laughs> except for South Dakota, New Hampshire, and Vermont. So if you're in South Dakota, New Hampshire, or Vermont, please make sure you go out and get a copy of our book at the Shroud of Turin, T-U-R-I-N dot O-R-G slash free book, F-R-E-E-B-O-O-K. Fantastic. Well, we're going to have to work on those states. That's for sure. We'll get them going. I know they're going to want to read it. It is, uh, it is, it's, it's really valuable and it really does summarize uh, what's going on with the Shroud of Turin. And then of course, Nazah and, and what it's doing to give uh, further meaning to the writings in the Old Testament. So with that, uh, again, thank you so much, Brian. Uh, Please stay tuned. For many other videos in this series of the backstory on the Shroud of Turin, please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. And we've been giving out and promoting things, so I'm going to promote my book, The Only Witness, A History of the Shroud of Turin. Please go to Amazon and uh, read it. And if you do read it, you can read it on Kindle or here in a print version. Please give it a review. And uh, that'll be uh, very good to get some of the key messages out uh, about Jesus, about the Shroud, and about uh, how Christianity formed over the last couple thousand years. Brian, thank you so much. 
Guy, thank you again for having me. Appreciate your time. It's always good to see you. Thank you.